So every year for the last several years, we've had the same group of friends come up and hang out with us on the 4th of July. And <clears throat> it's, a, it's a blast because the 4th of July is already nostalgic. It's summer and we watch Sandlot like every year. I think that's back-to-back week Sandlot references, uh, which I'm happy about. That was unintentional, but uh, it's already nostalgic. And then we get the same group of friends uh, and it's just good. And we end up inevitably every year walking back through stories of life together and of the different like 4th of Julys that we've had together. And it's a blast, but inevitably at some point in the conversation, it gets really hard. And there's kind of an awkward silence that, that happens. And the reason for that is, is because at some point, as we're telling stories about our lives together, we mention someone that we all knew that has completely walked away from their faith and has actually walked away from their relationship with us. And it's just hard. It's one of the hardest things in my life of thinking about those friends that we care about that have denied the faith. And my guess is that you have those stories, and the longer you follow Christ, unfortunately, the more of those stories you'll have And even if you don't have those stories personally, you've probably heard about the sort of famous Christians that have denied the faith, a lot of them even recently. And what we're talking about today, I think, is the primary reason why people walk away from Jesus. So ultimately, at the end of the day, sin is the reason people walk away. That there's no, excuse me, there's no longer a desire to live for Christ, but there's a desire to live for themselves. And that's something that not just kind of those people out there are tempted towards. That's something that all of us in this room fight with and are tempted towards. But what we're talking about today is suffering. And when I think back through the list of people in my head that I've seen this happen to, I think it comes back to primarily this issue. So either they encountered something in their life that was brutally hard, either suffering that just sort of happens in life, sickness or pain or loss or suffering from something that happened to them from the church and they they feel misunderstood or hurt by the church, that type of suffering, or they've seen someone that they care about suffer, or maybe it's this kind of general, more philosophical concept of why does suffering exist in the world? And I actually think that this is the objection to Christianity that is the hardest to deal with as Christians. It's the one that lands closest to home with me, the one that I've had to wrestle with the most. And, and I want us to, to go there because I think God can handle it, and I think it's important <clears throat> to really think hard and process what we believe. And this is the objection, is that <clears throat> if God is loving and he's in control, he's sovereign, then why would people suffer? And I want us to sit in that tension a little bit today, but I also want to tell you that the Bible actually answers that question directly. And 1 Peter 4 is going to address that question. And so I want to kind of work our way through 1 Peter 4 and sort of over time discover what it has to say about suffering. And here's what I want to tell you, even though this is a really difficult topic my guess is you didn't wake up this morning thinking, man, I really hope we talk about suffering at church, right? Like, Nobody does that. It's a hard topic, but I've actually found a ton of hope in this text. Because what I've seen is that there's something going on behind the scenes with suffering. 
that, that there's a bigger perspective out there than we tend to realize. And I'm thinking about my friends and I just wish they could see this perspective because it's so easy to get caught up in the pain but miss the beauty behind the pain. And I want us to look into 1 Peter 4 and see the beauty that's there. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. All right, so to be clear, what God just said is don't act like pain is a weird thing. Don't be surprised by it. When everything goes wrong in your life or in the lives of people that you love, embrace it. So, so let's feel this for a second. Let's do this justice. When your best friend dies of cancer, rejoice. When your spouse leaves you, celebrate. Not, not this kind of a glib sort of fake celebration. That's not what I'm talking about. Rejoicing is different than emotion. Rejoicing is different than happiness. It's actually closer to hope. Okay, so I want to clarify that. But this is saying embrace it. When you're mocked for your faith, let it roll off your back. That's what this is saying. And, and not only does that feel extremely odd to us, just like counter to everything in our instincts, but it actually feels wrong at the surface. Right? So when you think about that, you think about a God who is loving to his children, but is looking at his children and is saying, hey, I know that you're suffering and I want you to stay there and not only stay there, but I want you to embrace it. That's the tension that we're living in with this text. But again, <clears throat> there's more to be seen here. The reason why we feel like it's unjust, we feel like it's wrong, is because we lack perspective on everything that's going on behind the scenes. And 1 Peter 4 is going to pull back the curtain a little bit to give us a little bit of a window into what God is doing behind the scenes in suffering. How he's taking something that is inherently evil and turning it into good. Something that's destructive and making it beautiful. So I want to do some quick hits out of 1 Peter. There's a ton of content there. I want to do some quick hits about suffering. <clears throat> so the first one that I want you to see is that suffering is normal. Suffering is normal. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you. Okay, so step one to walking through suffering is not to freak out when it happens to you, but to understand that this is the normal life of a Christian. Now, brief tangent to clarify that I think is important. Why is suffering normal? Suffering is normal because of sin. Every single one of us in this room has engaged in sin. Every human being that's ever lived other than Jesus has sinned. And suffering is the immediate result of sin. So another way to put that is if human beings had never sinned, human beings never would have suffered. It is in its nature evil, but God can take it and he can twist it into good. <clears throat> and actually he will do that one day. So here's the hope of Christianity is that the, the present state isn't the end of the story, but there's actually a day coming when all suffering will be eliminated in the life that we feel like we want to live. The life that we feel like this world should be, but it never is, will actually come. God will make everything new, and he'll wipe suffering off of the face of the planet. That's the hope of, the Christian, of Christianity, but we live in the in-between. Peter tells us that we're exiles. We're not quite yet home, and when you're in exile, you should expect to suffer. It's actually normal. 
I can't believe how well this aligns with one of my favorite expressions in life that I didn't really think was that biblical until now. Here's one of my favorite expressions. The key to happiness in life, low expectations. Which I know is like a little bit of a downer, but it's super helpful. If you want to enjoy, enjoy a movie, just think that it's going to be terrible. And even if it's average, it'll be amazing. It works. Okay, key to happiness in life, low expectations. I do not do that well as a parent. Because I'm a new parent. I'm a first-time parent, and I've got game plans. And I still think that things are going to work according to my game plans. And there's this parenting subculture. Some of you are victims of this. Some of you are perpetrators of this. That just fuels that fire of here's your 15 steps to parenting that you've Googled. And if you follow them, then your child will be perfect. And I'm still a little bit convinced that I'm going to raise the, the world's first perfect child other than Jesus. And so I've got my game plans. And I need to hang out with parents that have been around the block a little bit more, like the parents that have three, four, five kids. It's like, hey, your toddler is sitting outside eating dirt, and they're just like, oh, it's fine. It's good for the immune system, right? Like, they just know not to freak out so much. But when you're a first-time parent, you don't know the difference between a normal Tuesday and an emergency. You just don't have context for it. And so you think that everything is an emergency. Exhibit A, sleep training. Parents are like, yeah. The rest of you are like, what? Um, so here's, here's what sleep training is. You've got to teach your kid to sleep. And so you've got to get them into like certain rhythms. And when they wake up, you can't just like coddle them and feed them immediately because they've got to teach, teach themselves like how to get through it and all this stuff. And it's normal and it's good and it's amazing, right? But it gets a little bit nuts. There's like the sleep training patrol out there that's like, hey, if you feed your kid once at night when you're not supposed to, he's never going to sleep again. And so we've had this like consistent moment throughout my life. Graham, Graham does not play by the rules of sleep training. He's just like, nope, the dude wants to party. And if there's people around, he's going to be awake. And so we've had these moments at 1, 2 in the morning where Graham is screaming at me like, feed me because that's what he wants. And I'm like, dude, I can't feed you right now or you'll never sleep again. You're going to be 10 years old. I'm going to be laying in your room because you're not going to know how to sleep. And so I'm just panicking because I think this is an emergency situation. And so I come into the office one morning haggard and exhausted and stressed about my kid not knowing how to sleep perfectly. And I start talking to Jennifer Tuttle. And she's like, oh, yeah, my boys didn't sleep train either. And then she said these words, it's completely normal. Changed my life. Nothing in my circumstances have changed. Graham is still revolting against baby-wise. But, but my perspective is entirely different. Because what used to feel like an emergency, now I see as just normal. And the anxiety levels, the stress levels are way down. And I'm handling it with a completely different perspective. This is what God is saying to you. When you suffer, it's normal. Your circumstances won't necessarily change, but your perspective can. And your anxiety and your stress levels and your panic when something goes wrong in your life actually can reduce if you'll just change your perspective a little bit. Suffering is normal. Number two, suffering purifies your faith. Suffering purifies your faith. Verse 12, again, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, so the meaning of that word test is really key here. So sometimes what suffering can feel like is that God is testing you until he's going to break you. It's like 
you're the aunt and he's the kid with the magnifying glass and the sun just kind of scorching you for fun. Like, it can feel like that when you're in the thick of suffering. But here's what this word means. Is it, it means to purify. It means to, to sort of draw out the dignity of something. So let's say that you're, you're a good Minnesotan and you're up north camping somewhere and you run out of drinking water. And so you get some drinking water from a stream or whatever and you've got to purify that drinking water. How do you pur- purify it? You boil it. Why? Because as the temperature increases, the contaminants in the water can't handle the heat and it kills off the contaminants and you're left with pure drinking water. Suffering is God turning up the heat in your life. And the reason he's turning it up in your life is because he wants to kill the contaminants in you. The stuff that if left unchecked will actually kill your soul, that, that pride, that self-dependence, that, that self-obsession in your life, suffering kills it. And it leaves you with a purified faith, just the pure real, raw thing. And it can feel like in that moment, like it's going to kill you, but it won't. Your faith will actually shine through. You'll make it. The contaminants of sin won't. But we get uncomfortable in these moments and we automatically assume that when we suffer that God is gone. And and we feel the the distance and, and the confusion of what's happening and we assume that our suffering is proof that God doesn't care about us. But it's actually the opposite. Thomas Schreiner said this, suffering is not evidence of God's absence but of his purifying presence. See, God loves you too much to leave you in the state that you're in. He will purify you because he knows it's good for you. And if suffering is what it takes, then he'll do it. When you suffer, God has not left you. He's killing the contaminants in your life before they kill you. And so choose to believe him when he says that he's being good to you, that there's more going on behind the scenes than what you realize. Next point, suffering produces glory. Suffering produces glory. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so that rejoice part, to rejoice in sufferings, we'll get back to that. But I want to tackle the second half of this verse when it says that Christ's glory will be revealed. Here's what enduring suffering does, is it authenticates your faith. So Jesus talked about this when he talked about the wheat and the weeds, right? He, he said that, that in life, there's both wheat, genuine Christians, and there's weeds, people who look like genuine Christians but actually aren't. And this is what he said, at least for a period of time, you can't tell the difference between the two. And you know what exposes the difference? Suffering. Suffering has this polarizing effect That when you suffer, either you'll be purified like we just talked about and your faith will grow and it'll be made more pure and it'll be made more perfect or your faith will be exposed for the sham that it is and you'll walk away or you'll begin the process of walking away. You almost never stay the same when you suffer. You go one way or the other. It has this polarizing effect. And here's what Peter is doing here. He's doing something that he he does throughout this entire letter is that he's connecting the future with what's going on in your life currently. He's connecting your present life with what your hope is. 
And, and this is what he's saying, is he's saying this life is of minuscule importance in comparison with what's coming in the next. So this is what Peter is, is saying about us. Imagine that you were born and you could only see three feet in front of your face. So you're incredibly nearsighted. You only see the things that are directly around you. It would drastically affect your life. Not only would you not be able to experience the beauty in the world, but it'd be a dangerous place to live. And Peter is saying that you were born only being able to see three feet in front of your face. That we all are so obsessed with this current life and the current reality of our souls and our life that we actually miss eternity. But now imagine that someone walked up to you and they put glasses on your face and all of a sudden you could see. You could see off into the distance. How much would that change your life? This is saying that the gospel is like those glasses that once you get the gospel of Jesus Christ, they slide onto your eyes and all of a sudden you can see. And you can see off into eternity. And you see your life with more perspective now. And it floods back into your current. And it impacts the way that you live. And, and, and he's telling you to look forward into glory and let that filter back into your current life and affect that you, the way that you're living now. And he's saying this impacts the way that you understand suffering in your life. He's saying one moment that you will have with Jesus. One moment of unfiltered glory, of seeing him and experiencing him when he comes back, will be worth every negative thing that's happened to you in this life. Now, I'm not saying that to try and minimize your suffering. There's people in this room that have suffered in ways that I can't understand. I'm saying it to maximize the glory of Jesus. I'm not saying that your suffering is insignificant. I'm saying that even with how significant your suffering is, how life-altering it is, that one moment with Jesus will overwhelm that suffering where it will become inconsequential in relationship to knowing him. That's how good he is. And so don't be a nearsighted Christian so overwhelmed by your current life that you miss eternity and what's coming for you. When the pain feels overwhelming, it's temporary. It will end, I promise you. If you stick with Christ, if you keep showing up, if you don't walk away from your faith, the pain will end and it will be transformed into glory and you will be authenticated as a genuine Christian by the fact that you survived, that you just kept showing up. It will be worth it to stick with Jesus and he will fix everything. He'll fix everything in this world and he'll fix everything in you. But here's what happens is when people leave the faith, or maybe, maybe a better way to put that is when suffering exposes what was always true of their faith. It's because they start to think that Jesus was the problem instead of the solution. So I want you to notice what type of suffering specifically he's talking about in this text. So I think it applies to all forms of suffering, but he's talking to a specific type of suffering. In verse 14, it says that these people were being insulted for the name of Christ. They were being mocked for their faith. Living as a Christian wasn't easy. And this is what I want to tell you. If you're genuinely living the Christian life, you will suffer for it. If you're not intentionally hiding your faith, but being honest with the people in your life about what you believe, and if you're trying to actively live out your faith to influence other people, people will mock you for your faith. 
You'll clash with culture. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be caricatured as something that isn't true of you. You'll have something that deeply matters to you mocked. And when people leave the faith, it's because it gets hard. And, and they feel like it'll be an easier life to just leave Jesus behind and not have to deal with that anymore. But the thing that's so heartbreaking about that is they have no idea what they just gave up. So I want you to, to imagine that you lost absolutely everything in your life. Okay, so I'm, I'm talking about somehow in some, some life event, you lost your home you lost your family, you lost all of your finances. The only thing you have to your name is maybe like a snack in your back pocket and that's it. Now imagine that someone walks up to you, a wealthy person, and says, hey, I want to help you out. I want to make this better for you. And they say, I've got two options. Either I can help you right now with, with what I've got on me. I've got a $10 bill in my pocket. I can, I can give that to you right now so you can go buy a meal if you want. Or if you're willing to wait, I'll get my finances together tonight and tomorrow I'll wire you $10 million. What do you take? Hopefully the $10 million, right? Like you, you're not even enticed by that $10 bill. And you know what? What happens to you for that one night does not really matter. If you have to sleep on the streets, if you have to go hungry, who cares? You're about to have $10 million. So you're not going to feel the weight of that. You're going to celebrate what's coming. This is what I'm saying. If you walk away from Christ in this life, you're taking the 10 bucks instead of the 10 million. You have an inheritance coming to you in Christ in eternity that is unbelievably good. That is like... Try to imagine something better than what it'll be like to be with Christ. You can't even get close. That inheritance is coming for you if you will just wait, if you will just stick with it. And here's what that does is it informs how you live now. Because even if this life is horrible for you, you've got the 10 million coming and you can rejoice. But it's tempting to believe that we can avoid pain altogether. That that life should be easier than what it is. But here's what's true, is that suffering is an inevitable result of sin. And because we all have sinned, we all will suffer to some degree. And the question is not if, but when we'll suffer. You will either suffer the pain of claiming Christ in this life and live in joy forever, or you'll deny Christ now and live a few good years on this earth, and you'll suffer for an eternity of being removed from his presence. Those are the two options. Verse 17 and 18 talks about this. It talks about how if we ourselves as believers are being judged right now, it doesn't mean judged for our sins. It means put through the fires of suffering to weed out the sin in our lives. If even we who have been made righteous in Christ have to go through that, what will it be like for people who deny him? The answer is it will be eternal separation from his presence, and his presence is the best thing imaginable. You can have a slightly easier life now, or you can have eternal unending, or, or excuse me, you can have a slightly easier life now with eternal unending joy, or you can deny Christ now and experience suffering for eternity you choose. That's the choice. And, and honestly, even with that, to, to deny Christ might make life a little bit easier now, but it definitely won't make it better. So the next one, sin is suffering. 
Sin is suffering. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. So this is what Peter is saying. Is he saying, hey, I'm, I'm telling you that, that suffering can, can produce glory and to, to lean into it and to embrace it in some senses. But what I'm not talking about is the suffering that comes from sin. That's a different thing. Avoid that suffering at all costs. And here's why that's insightful is because what that just exposed is what sin actually is, is that it's suffering. Here's what sin does, is it promises you that it's good and that it's enticing, right? That's why we sin, is because we're convinced in that moment that sin will actually make our lives better. But this is what Peter is saying, is that sin can't back up its promises, that it's not good, it's actually suffering, that it won't make your life better, it'll make it worse. The more you engage in sin, the worse that your life is. And so run from that type of suffering. You don't actually have to suffer by living in sin. You can turn from it. Jesus has given you that ability. Okay. So this is what we've said. We've said that sin is actually not fun or good, that it's suffering. We've said that Christian suffering, even when it's horrible, will actually produce glory in your life. We've said that suffering isn't actually strange or unexpected. It's normal. Okay, there's, there's a trend in here. And here's the trend, is that what you're tempted to feel is not actually what's true. There's a discrepancy between your feelings and reality. So you'll be tempted to feel that suffering is going to kill you and that it should be avoided at all costs. But what's actually true is that if you embrace it, it will refine you for your good. You'll be tempted to think that sin is fun and good, enjoyable, but it actually can't back up its promises. There's a gap between what you think is real and what actually is real. And the reason why we fall into that gap over and over and over again is because we give our feelings way too much credit. We just assume that our feelings are true. Why? Like, when I was growing up, and we were being taught how to write research papers, what was the thing, I don't know if you guys had this too, but at least for me, the thing they always said is, don't cite Wikipedia. Yeah, you guys have heard this too, right? Why? Because anybody can write whatever they want on Wikipedia. Now, is some of the things on there true? Yes. But are some of the things on there false? Yes. Therefore, it's not a good source for reality. So don't cite it. Use a better source. Your feelings are Wikipedia. Every once in a while, oh, wow, that was amazing. I didn't see who that was, but thanks for thinking that was funny. I didn't know it was that funny. Uh, so this is what I'm saying, is that your feelings sometimes are true, sometimes are good, sometimes are right, but more often than not, they're wrong. So why do you trust them so much? They're not a good source for understanding what's real. You need to learn to realize that when there's tension between what you feel is good and what God says is good, the problem is with you, not with God. The problem's with me, not with God. And when I look back on my life and my track record, it is hilarious that I continue to listen to myself in situations. I've done so much dumb stuff in my life. You know how you look back on your former self like 10 years ago and you think you were dumb? Do you realize that you in 10 years will think that the current you is dumb? I didn't call you dumb. Don't be offended. The, the future you called you dumb. But it's just true. Like we just, I am not good at making intelligent decisions for my own life. 
And so I don't know why I tend to trust myself so much. But when I look on God's track record in my life, he has never failed me. He has never let me down. Every time that I've thought that he's left me or that something was going wrong in my life, I look back on that now and I now see his goodness, his faithfulness to me. He has always come through for me. And so why in the world would I trust myself when it comes into conflict with what he says? Let's trust him instead of our feelings or even our reason. So how do you rejoice in suffering even when it's counterintuitive to what you think is good? You believe that God is good even when it feels like he isn't. You put your hope in his character and in his ways, not your own. Which, again, by the way, that's why rejoicing is not just a feeling. It's something closer to hope. It's looking at God and saying, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't necessarily feel like this relationship with you, but I believe that you'll come through. I believe that I can hope in you. I believe that you're worth following. That's what it looks like to rejoice. You put your hope in his character. This is from verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. So God is faithful. In other words, he's good. He loves you. He's always out for your benefit, not your detriment. He's the creator. In other words, he's powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's got this thing covered. You can trust that he will always be kind to you, even when it feels like he's not. So one of the actual, like, emergencies, not fake emergencies that we've had with Graham, well, it wasn't really an emergency, but, like, significant thing that happened, was uh, he's starting to get mobile, and we thought that was going to be awesome, and actually it's just terrifying because now everything is an obstacle for him to hit his head on. And so he took a header on a coffee table the other day and um, cut his eyebrow, like, wide open, and it was a bummer. And so we, we took him into the, to the hospital, and he had to get stitches. And here's the deal. Stitches hurt. Like, they do a good job of, like, helping him get through it and minimizing the pain or whatever, but they, they hurt. And so here's just the reality of the situation, is I intentionally inflicted pain upon my son whom I love. Why? Because I love him. Because this is what I knew in that moment that he doesn't know, is that that temporary pain will produce long-term health. And he doesn't have the ability to understand that. He didn't know what was going on. And it's hard. It's hard to inflict that pain, but I knew that it was good. And because I loved him, I had no other option than to take him in to get the stitches because I want what's good for him long-term. Suffering is ultimately for your good. God at times, is in control and sovereign over suffering because he wants your good. And what I'm telling you is that you will tend to freak out because you won't have the perspective to be able to understand that pain. But you can trust that God knows what he's doing because he's always been faithful to you and he's proved himself good. 
the best example that I can look back on on the goodness of Jesus, even in the middle of pain, is Hebrews 12.2. It says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What? Like, what possibly could have been joyful about the cross? He, he was abandoned by the people that he loved the most. He, he was mocked by the people that should have been worshiping him. He endured the, the cruelest form of physical punishment that the Romans possibly could have come up with. But what did Jesus know? He knew that it wasn't the end of the story. He knew that after that temporary pain, he'd be sitting at the right hand of God and then he would be able to invite you into God's presence because of that pain that he endured. What was coming in the future was so good that it dulled the pain for him now and he could look at the most horrible, horrific event in the history of the world and say, that's for my joy because through that pain, I can bring about greater good. That's what Jesus does. And he despised the shame. And so now you can despise your shame. Because Jesus despised the shame of the cross. If you are in him, you no longer have the shame and guilt of sin to bear, which is maybe one of the cruelest forms of suffering that we can endure. Because he took on the shame of the cross, you no longer have to have shame in him. You can be forgiven of everything you've ever done. He suffered incredible pain to dull the edge of your suffering. And because he suffered, he now can empathize with your pain. There is no pain that you've experienced that Jesus himself has not experienced. He knows what it's like. He's not some distant CEO that's asking you to do something that he never would do himself. He first suffered before he asked you to suffer. And he said, I will walk through that pain with you. And I think even more than the fact that he can empathize, the thing that I hold on to most when life feels horrible, when I'm in the middle of pain, is the reality that Jesus unequivocally, historically proved his love for me on the cross. That, what Jesus did is a historical fact. And here's the reality. If a God would do something like that for me, there's absolutely nothing, that he, nothing else that he wouldn't do for my good. If he would endure a cross for me, then everything in my life he will use for my good. I can have confidence in his goodness to me. I don't need proof now in my pain of what's going to come out of it. I don't have to know all the answers because I can look back in history and I can see the God-man hanging on a cross and say, he loves me. That's unequivocal proof of his love. And so I can endure now even when I don't understand because I can trust his character more than I can even trust my own. He is good. He is faithful. He will always work for your good. He will never bring you harm. He will only bring what's good to you. And he proved that on the cross. And in his resurrection, he proved that evil is nothing to him. He just flicked it away like an annoying little fly. It was nothing to him. It couldn't hold him. And now Jesus is untouchable. And guess what? So are you. 
Because whatever circumstance is in your life, you have him and you have hope forever. If your life is amazing or if it's horrible, you have Jesus and you can get through. You are untouchable. So why would a loving God who's in control of everything allow us to suffer? Because he loves us too much to not give it to us. Let me pray. Jesus, that's hard for me to believe. When I'm in the middle of pain, um, I, I don't know how to believe that. I don't know how to understand that truth. And so I want to pray right now for the people who are in pain currently, who are suffering currently, and it's really hard for them to believe. I pray that they would not feel like what's being said in your word or what you're doing is minimizing their pain, but that they would see that you're maximizing your glory in their life. Help them to see that you are strong enough to conquer evil forever, that you will do that one day, that you are in control, and help them to see that they're strong enough to keep going. God, would we be a church that just keeps showing up even when it's hard? I don't want to be a Christian who only walks with you when it's easy. I want to be a Christian who sees you as valuable and worthwhile even when it's hard. And would we be a church that's like that? And would you give us hope when we need it? And so for the people who are in pain right now, give them hope. Break through the suffering and offer them joy. And for the people who aren't really suffering that much right now, would you prepare our souls for what inevitably will come if we live long enough so that we would honor you when we walk through that. Give us perspective, God, to see everything that you're doing behind the scenes. And even when we don't understand, help us to trust. You're worth following, Jesus. We declare our faith in you, even when it's imperfect. Thank you for loving us. And now we praise you together. Amen.